In the golden days of Hollywood, many people hoped to find fame by having their face featured on the cover of major publications. Tragically, one woman achieved it posthumously. Her name was Elizabeth Short, and she would be called the Black Dahlia. Her killer would go unpunished, but some say not undetected. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, panic in America. Today's conversation includes graphic content that is not suitable for all listeners. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Hooray for Hollywood, that's gooey bally hooly Hollywood, where any office boy or young mechanic can be a panic with just a good-looking pan. And any shop girl can be a top girl if she pleases the tired businessman. Hooray for Hollywood, you may be homely in your neighborhood. Yes, we have heard people sing Hooray for Hollywood, but perhaps there should also be a chorus of Hooray for persevering detectives. You may be Donald Duck, Hooray for Hollywood. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to Watching America, Steve Hodell. Steve Hodell is the author of numerous books, including The Black Dahlia Avenger in 2003, his initial publication. Then he followed that in 2009 with Most Evil, and then The Black Dahlia 2 in 2012. Then Most Evil 2 in 2015. His latest book is In the Mesquite 2019 publication, which is an examination of of his pursuit of solving the 1938 West Texas kidnap torture circumstance. In short, the murders of Hazel and Nancy Frome. But before we get there, I want to get to the beginning. I want to talk about, well, a little boy born to George and Dorothy Hodell named Steve. What are some of your earliest recollections in a home that would eventually become, in its own right, rather infamous? Yes. Uh, Well, let's see. To begin with, uh, I was born at Queen of Angels in Los Angeles, about two miles from that famous uh, Soden home that Dad would buy. I was basically lived there with my parents from age zero to nine, when Dad fled the country in 1950. So born in 41, uh, and I was there till 50. And uh, very positive uh, memories of, uh, you know, it, to me it was uh, this very unusual Mayan temple, of course. It was like a, a Hollywood set, if you would. And um, my mother was this very beautiful screenwriter, uh, s- sort of an actress. Uh, as a young girl, she did some acting. And um, Dad was this powerful medical doctor, handsome lots of parties, cocktail parties, um, and this very unusual home to be living in. It was, uh, it was fantasy for me. It was, it was just magic time. Lots of uh, positive memories of uh, people laughing and drinking in cocktail parties. And uh, my two brothers, I had, uh, there were three sons. So I had an older brother, Michael, and a younger brother, Kelvin. And the three of us would uh, hang out and in the courtyard and watch the people. And it was just a, a great time until suddenly in 1949, uh, the lights went out and dad was gone and we were suddenly out and about and off on our own new, new, uh, adventure with mom. And dad went to the Philippines. Is that correct? He did. Well, initially dad went to, uh, Hawaii, which was still a territory back then. Mm. And he was there a couple of years. Uh, he was uh, he was got his degree in psychiatry. He was working at the prison system there, counseling the criminally insane for a, a year or so. And then he would uh, meet and uh, marry a, a young Filipino woman, Hortensia, came from a very wealthy, uh, connected family in Manila, 
and they would have a, a daughter there, and then they would go on to Manila and uh, have three more children with her. That marriage would break up after about four or five years. One of the things I wanted to ask you is about your dad, George, in relation to his attraction initially to Dorothy. Uh, as you've declared, Dorothy was a screenwriter. She was also um, an actress, aspiring of a sort. Uh, she was more of a screenwriter, an intellectual, um, and of course she married very young. And uh, there's a story there, of course, um, going back to the uh, 20s. So she was uh, actually double dating with uh, George, my father, George Hodell, uh, was uh, good friends with John Houston, who uh, will eventually become a very famous film director. Yes, of course. Yes, but back yes. then, of course, he was his fame was he was the son of Walter Houston, who was a stage and screen actor of of uh, very quite prominent. His father, so he was just a, a young eighteen year old uh, son of Walter. But Dad and George and John double dated, wow. and they they were double dating uh, Emilia, who was a attractive young woman working at the downtown L.A. library, which had just been built, and Dorothy, who was uh, an 18-year-old, very beautiful young woman. So as it started out, George started dating Dorothy, and John started dating Emilia. And then after a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, they switched, (laughs) and John and Dorothy fell in love. Uh, Off they went. uh, they, They went to New York. They got married, and so my future mother, Dorothy, uh, would be married to John for seven years. Uh, They would be living in New York, then they'd come back to Los Angeles. Well, Steve, I have a very limited repertoire for imitations, but I do do a a, a reasonably good John Huston. It goes like this. I was with Kate Hepburn, went to a little island off the coast of California called Catalina. Bogey was there. <laughs> he had this wonderful ability to extend the ends of words. So um, he did. had it not been for the switch around, um, it would have been a very different scenario, and you, perhaps your last name would have been Houston. Well, George is your daddy, and um, you find some rather disturbing things early on in your life. I'm going to head right to the the key crux of everything. A 22-year-old Elizabeth Short was found mutilated, dead, cut in half. Uh, She is known as the Black Dahlia. It was the Black Dahlia murder. It happened January the 15th, 1947. And she was found in an empty lot, albeit not that far from where you, your mum, and your brothers resided. Um, That would have been sufficient unto itself had you not chosen the career that you did. For over 24 years, you were in the LAPD. You were a homicide detective. You handled over 300 cases. And you had evidently become aware of of this uh, case uh, because it it was not solved. It was left, you know, open still not no one really knowing what to do or to make of it it kind of grew cold over the decades your father dies you go through his materials you find a, an intriguing box you open it and sort sorting through the belongings you see a series of curious pictures and it occurs to you that one of the pictures depicts a woman who looks amazingly like the black dahlia take it from there steve I spent uh, 23 years with LAPD, 17 as a homicide detective, and as you say, 300 murders. Then I retired uh, in 86 and uh, and started a whole new life, moved up to Seattle, uh, north of Seattle, to Bellingham, Washington. Had my young sons. I had two sons and uh, was raising them there. And my father relocated after being absent for several decades, uh, well, actually, since 1950, decided to come back to the U.S. came, returned and relocated to San Francisco. So we had been estranged, although I had seen him through the years. And uh, we hooked back up and became very close. So in that last decade of his life, uh, I got to see him on a regular basis and stuff. He dies of a heart attack at age 91. And as you say, I'm I'm called down to um, uh, by his wife, June, you know, help her take care of all the things you have to do when a father passes. And she's, we're sitting there talking about the great man's passing and what a remarkable life he had. And she brings out this small album with this photograph, as you mentioned. And uh, I'm going through the album and I, it's got photos of my mother and, and 
Us Boys, taken by Man Ray, who was a famous surrealist artist and a friend of the family. He was actually our family photographer. And I come across this photo of this dark-haired young woman, and I said to June, who is this? She says, I don't know, somebody your father knew from a long time ago. And it looked vaguely familiar. Well, I had had no no investigation, no contact with the crime itself, which occurred in 47. I came on in 63, and I was dealing with the present and the future, not the past. I'd heard about it as the famous unsolved. You know, it was one of probably the most famous unsolved LAPD had, and it went through the academy. I saw uh, photographs of it they mentioned, but that was it. I didn't even know her name. So anyway, I look at this, and for some reason, Black Dahlia comes to mind. And and to this day, I can't exactly explain it, although it may have been there was a movie made in the mid-'70s with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. and mm-hmm. uh, Lucy Arnaz about the Black Dahlia, so it, and it was a spitting image, so it might have been that. But anyway, it just came and went. Uh, fast forward, I'm, a day later, I'm talking to my half-sister, on the telephone, she's in Hawaii, and we're talking about our same father, talking about his passing and what a remarkable life. And she comes out and she says, well, you know, he was a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. <laughs> and I'm saying, what are you talking about, Tamar? I said, where in the hell is this coming from? Well, half-sister, but we'd had, I'd had maybe a half hour of communications in 50 years with her. Mm-hmm. you know, And um, we had never had any real contact. So I I said, well, that's ridiculous. I said, you know, she says, well, he was a suspect. He didn't do it. But that, I said, where is this coming from? She says, well, the LAPD detectives told me this uh, during the trial. And there was a trial. A dad was arrested back in 49 for incest, where he was actually tried and be, uh, found not guilty. He got Jerry Geisler, who was like the Johnny Cochran of that day. Incest uh, with we, whom, may I ask? His daughter or, or Yes, with Tamar. With, with Tamar. His, and, with and, my half sister. Yeah. She was she was uh seven years older than I and she was living with us at the this Franklin Soden house that this Mayan temple. And in her in her attitude, did she absolve him from this crime or, or did she, she no, believe no, no, he did no. it? Oh, there was no question about there were three adults present during the actual sex act. So it was it was a slam dunk case, but you got to understand, L.A. back then was a real-life L.A. confidential, a lot of corruption, a lot of payoffs. And we would later find out, actually, would I, once I would get into the secret files, we would actually discover there was actually a, a payoff of $15,000. Were you aware of any aberrant, peculiar behavior of your dad at that point? No. No, I wasn't. You know, I was, you know, I was, uh, at that point, I was eight years old. I see. And, uh, so oblivious to I just to saw it. him as a larger-than-life, you know, mm-hmm. l- a large and in charge, uh, handsome. I was very proud of him. Erudite, know. clever man. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so after Tamar told me this, I said, "Well, that's this is ridiculous." I said, "I knew he was good for the incest because he had an obsession with sex, which I would, you know, later discover in my adulthood, and and I always believed Tamar, but." Uh, Murder, you know, a cold-blooded killing, a torture, kidnap, torture, murder, no way. So I said, I'll be able to exonerate him in 10 seconds. And that's what I started out to do. I started looking into the case. I didn't even know the victim's name. At that time, I was divorced. This is, we're in, talking about 1999 now. So long retired, 13 years retired from LAPD. And I started looking into the case. My girlfriend was in L.A. She was sending me up newspapers from that time period. The next thing that really jumped out at me was she sends me up the front page of uh, one of the local newspapers, the Times or uh, Examiner, I forget which, and on it was uh, the killer in the Black Dahlia murder started taunting the police with notes, cut-and-paste notes like ransom-type things and disguised handwriting. Well, in this one that he sent in, it was undisguised, and he had written a note saying, turning myself in on January 29th, had my son at the police, signed it Black Dahlia Avenger. Well, I looked at the handwriting, and it's my father's handwriting. Oh. I mean, you know your parents' handwriting, your listeners yes. know their parents' handwriting, yes. and I knew his. He had a very unusual block printing style. 
But I still said to myself, no way. There's just no way. Is he pretending to be the suspect? What the hell is going on here? You know? And, um, and then uh, I did some digging in, and I discovered that the crime was committed by a surgeon, skilled surgeon, not a meat cutter. The police had established that it's, it had to have been a, a skilled surgeon. Well, Dad, in his early doctoring, had been a surgeon at the, in New Mexico and, and at the CCC uh, Roosevelt camps. But still, I said, there's no way. And at that point, uh, I kind of decided, well, look, I, I can't do an absentee. I'm living in Bellingham. I can't do an absentee investigation. So I relocated back to L.A. and started a serious investigation and started talking to witnesses that were still alive and, and doing heavy-duty stuff. Let me ask you, Steve, um, when you entertain the idea of furthering this investigation, and clearly with the with the murder being perpetrated, evidently, by somebody who was a surgeon, a la an echo, historical echo of Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. uh, what made you want to pursue this? I mean, wasn't there a part of you that were, was repulsed by the idea of, well, part of the origin of your DNA belonging to a murderer? I mean, what gave you the incentive to keep going? No, it was just the opposite. I was absolutely convinced that he had nothing to do with it. I see. And I would be able to establish and exonerate him ah. and clear his name and, and, you know, of any suspicion. Got you. My mistake was in following the evidence. Ultimately, it would all come together in this massive case that actually leaves no doubt that he was actually the killer. And the horror was, as I got into it, I discovered that it wasn't just the one murder. It wasn't just Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, but it was a, he was a serial killer. What were the connecting factors? I mean, to, to designate somebody as a serial killer, there has to be something that is the thread that is typical oh, yeah. uh, well, of, of the uh, modus operandi, if you will. Yeah. Actually, uh, if, you get, if you get three or four um, crime signatures that look similar, Mm-hmm. You're going to look at them. Well, ultimately, I would come up with 32 separate crime signatures, uh, which is unheard of, you know, as far as connecting him. But just some of the main ones, they weren't all the women. All the victims were not cut in half, but they were po- many of them were posed on vacant lots. They were um, basically uh, tortured, overkill, you know, uh, clearly a classic sadist in the extreme. Were these victims, uh, was there evidence of sexual abuse in the process, or was it just the killing alone? Both. Yeah, Both. some were, some were not. Some were, some were there was actual, actual uh, uh, sexual assault and rape in some of them, and some not. Uh, some were random, you know, just grabbed off the street. Others uh, were uh, met at, you know, one of them, he followed off a bus, and... and all kinds of different ones, but in a pretty tight geographical pattern. And actually, I would discover once I got into the secret files that there were actually four or five of the ones that I came up with 12, and at least five of those were actively investigated uh, by LAPD and the DA's offices being connected. Now, they didn't have the term serial killer back then, but they called them, what was it they called them? They called them uh, chain killings. The vacant lot aspect uh, is intriguing. Uh, yes. What's with the propensity for? I mean, I would think that if someone had such nefarious evil intent, the very last place you'd want to be perpetrating these cutting up sessions and deboweling people on presumes and what have you it would be in an open lot. Um, how does that figure with the psyche of the perpetrator? Well, for, for example, with the Black Dahlia crime, she wasn't murdered at the vo- open lot. She was murdered at the at our home, the Franklin House, the Soden House. Wow! In your, in your home. This took yes. place. Yes. And, uh, you know, maybe, I, I don't know if you, you, you kind of have to understand, he's, and he's posing these bodies. Uh, one of the main keys of linkage was street signs. Um, Dad, and that's why we kind of need to understand Dad a little bit more to, to understand what he's doing here. Born in L.A., musical prodigy at age nine, playing his own piano concerts at the Shrine Auditorium. At age 14, he's entering, he's graduated from high school. They've identified him as a high genius, 186 IQ, one point above Einstein. That skips a generation, so my boys are in good shape. But goes to Caltech at 14, has an affair with a professor's wife. She gets pregnant. 
She breaks up her marriage. She goes east. He follows her east at 15 and says, I want to raise the child. She says, George, you're a child yourself. Get out of my life. She's laughing at him. Get go. He comes back. Um, he, then we have the situation with uh, Emilia. She gets pregnant. They go north. Pre-med at uh, Berkeley goes across to U.S. At San Francisco, uh, gets his M.D. there, highly skilled amongst his many gifts. He's got this amazing eye-hand coordination. His professors at uh, in medical school are vying him to be their assistant because he's got this natural ability as a surgeon. Gets a job, goes to New Mexico and the Hopi Navajo reservations, becomes a sole surgeon of a logging camp, comes back to L.A., joins the health department, quickly rises to the top, becomes the VD czar, specializes in um, sexual uh, ailments, and mm -hmm. uh, becomes the VD czar of Los Angeles. Venereal diseases, yes. Yeah. And then he, he buys the Soden House, this Mayan temple, uh, marries mom, uh, and then my brothers and I come along in the late 30s, early 40s. Everything goes along fine until 49. He gets arrested on the incest when Tamar, is, my half-sister, is visiting us, and he splits the country. He's about to be arrested. He, after the trial, he's acquitted, but they're going to arrest him on the, on the uh, Dahlia crime. He splits the country, goes to Hawaii. He's in the wind. You know, we would never have known this except for some secret files that my investigation ultimately would reveal. So basically, I put it all together, and I go to a district attorney in Los Angeles who's still active, a guy named Steve Kay, who was a head district attorney. He, he actually prosecuted all the Manson cases with Bugliosi. Uh, he was co-counsel, mm -hmm. and um, he highly respected. I give him the present my case, give him my written investigation. He reviews it for six months and comes back and says, well, he says, this is, you know, basic, basically my review. I would file against George Hodel on the Dahlia case, Elizabeth Short, and the second murder, which was known as the Gene French that happened three weeks after. Nude body posed on a lot. And he took lipstick and wrote on her body an obscenity F.U. Uh, and signed it B.D. for Black Dahlia. So he says, I'd file on those two and I'd win it in a jury trial. He says, the other cases are very interesting. You're probably right, but not quite enough to cross the threshold for filing. Let me just remind everyone listening that this is Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And we are speaking with Steve Hodell, who discovered that his father indeed was a monster believed to be the perpetrator of the murder of the Black Dahlia. In 1947, January the 15th thereof, a body was found of a female mutilated, cut apart, torn apart, of a 22-year-old woman, aspiring actress by the name of Elizabeth Short. Now, Steve Hodell, for 24 years, worked for the LAPD department he became uh, one of the best homicide detectives handling over 300 cases and moreover retired and then became a private investigator and in the process hit upon a bizarre and disturbing discovery amongst his deceased father's possessions, a picture of a woman looking amazingly like the Black Dahlia. And this ensued with him getting back to Los Angeles to investigate the circumstances and concluding, as did the assistant district attorney, as we've just heard, that this indeed was the connection. His father was the murderer and perpetrator of not only the death of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, but also of many other women. And now, Sir Steve, we will continue uh, from where we've just spoken. Okay. So basically, with that, I said, okay, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and write it up as a, as a book, as a true crime story, and, and reveal it. And I did, and just before the publication, I went to a top L.A. columnist, a newspaper guy for the L.A. Times named Steve Lopez. And uh, he jumped into it and uh, went to LAPD and said, hey, there's this guy, Hodel. He, he uh, says his father's the Black Dahlia killer, yada, yada, yada. And the LAPD basically says, go away. We don't talk about unsolved cases. So he goes to the head to the actual DA Stephen Cooley, and says, "Hey, Hodel, Black Dahlia, blah blah." blah. 
And the DA says, well, I'm not spending a dime of taxpayers' money on a 60-year-old case. But he says, you know, there's a f- box, a, a file in the vault on the Black Dahlia. Would you like to see that? And Lopez says, yeah. Sure. They go down. He unlocks the vault. He gives them this box. He goes up, stairs, sits down, opens it up, and out falls a picture of Dr. George Hill Odell. He goes, whoa, he was a suspect. He gets into it, and there's, you know, 800 pages of investigation. And he he writes a couple of articles, um, short articles in his column. Says, well, Hodel wasn't was a suspect, blah blah blah, and there are these transcripts. So I get permission from Cooley to go down and look at them and copy the material, which I do. Spend six months reviewing it and basically uh, put it all together. And and what we discover is that your house was bugged. Yes, what we discover is that the uh, actually the LAPD, the DA's office took it away. The grand jury took it away from LAPD and said, we want the DA's office to investigate it. None of these crimes are being solved. Something's wrong here. DA, one of the white hats, Lieutenant Frank Jemison of the DA's office, jumps into it. He forms a task force of 18 detectives. He goes out and he picks up George Hodel and he brings him in for questioning. And while he's got him at the office downtown, his men go out and they bug our home, this Mayan temple. Mm. on Franklin Avenue, and they put not phone taps, but actual live microphones in the walls. And they will spend the next um, six weeks listening 24-7, 18 detectives around the clock. Steve, let me ask you about a particular uh, time, which is the 19th of February, 1950, when they hear a scream of a woman repeatedly. I mean, that that really is is kind of the, the key pinnacle thing. Um, it is. Tell us about that. Okay. Well, uh, on that same date, actually, on the on the eighteenth uh, on the eighteenth of February, nineteen fifty, Dad's talking with a, an, a Baron Haringa uh, in conversation, and and he basically confesses to the Black Dahlia murder, and uh, says, uh, "Supposing I did kill a Black Dahlia, they can't prove it now. My secretary is dead." He then goes on to talk about uh, overdosing a secretary and there's a lot more he talks about ab- performing abortions and all sorts of stuff so they so they get this then later on I couldn't believe this I'm reading the transcripts and they ran a hard wire from the Franklin house this Mayan temple to Hollywood station and the detectives are sitting in the basement of Hollywood station but what's the distance seven. between the, the Mayan about house as you call it? by the way miles. you say the Mayan house Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. designed your house didn't he that's right. It's known as the Soden House. It's a historic monument and set, a yes. Hollywood set. But yes, okay. Frank Lloyd Wright Jr., Lloyd Wright, actually designed it. And he was good friends of my father. And Your father was good friends with everybody, seemingly. I mean, you had an amazing uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. cavalcade and parade of persons in and out of your home. Going back to the line now, so it goes from your house, a hard wire line, to the police station. What, what, what was well, the distance? It's about three miles, but it's actually it went to the telephone lines, it, so uh-huh. just up to the telephone lines, and they use those. So it's not like they ran one line yes. three miles. Okay, they, they just connected it to the telephone, and then they connected it at the other end from the telephone lines to the basement. So his sexual activities heard, uh, banal uh, conversations heard, and then these uh, certainly incriminating facets are, are revealed. Right. Why isn't there more of a pursuit? Why Why did they just let it go? Well, so they're sitting there listening to the conversation, and they and I'm reading the transcript, and they say George and the Baron Aringa and Hodel go downstairs to the basement. An object is heard striking. A woman screams. More blows. A woman screams again, and then it goes silent. And I'm reading this, and I'm th- thinking, what the hell? Why aren't they out the door? It's six five minutes away. And uh, doing a rescue, they do nothing. So the detectives either, I don't know, you know, I can't answer why they didn't, but all we know is they didn't. And they would go on for another six weeks to, so this was either a serious felony assault or more likely a murder. I'm convinced it's a murder because we hear George on the transcript say, you know, don't leave a trace of anything to the Baron. 
you surely must have thought this through and through and through. You're an intelligent man. Uh, you are uh, like your daddy, a man with a perceptive intellect. What possible notions do you have as for why they may not have pursued this? Were they waiting for a bigger catch later on to incriminate him? Or, or what, do you, what do you think might have been the reasoning? Well, I think possibly that these two detectives are, it's the third day of the stakeout, okay? Mm -hmm. They've just started it. And I think they probably looked at each other and thinking, what the hell's going on? Well, they knew he had a record for kinky sex and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they're thinking, well, maybe the, maybe it's just sex. It's, you know, it, it was very short. And I think, well, maybe, you know, it's Sadomasochism or something. It's quiet now, you know? Yeah. And maybe they tried to phone Lieutenant Jemison, and he wasn't available or whatever. What do we do, you know? Right. We don't want to blow the stake out, you know? It's only day three. So I think either, you know, either that or, you know, the the worst thing, of course, would be that they had more knowledge and they were covering it up. But I, I suspect it was just, uh, uh, you know, well, let's, you know, what do we do? We don't want to blow this right. kind of thing. So kind of like and, let it ride and see where it goes. Right. Yeah. And and you got to also understand the timing of it. It's it's 1950. Uh, William Parker, who was our greatest police chief, is just about to take over command. Mm. Okay, right. And he's he's uh, about to assume chief. He's going to clean up Dodge. He's going to get rid of all the corruption and and turn the department around. So which politics he does are involved. Yes, which he does. Yeah. Dad is probably uh, the way I see it is Dad has just fled the country shortly thereafter, mm -hmm. and. Uh, they probably had burned the midnight oil at City Hall and said, look, he's out of the country. Maybe we can get him back. Maybe we can't. Let's just lock this away for now. Let's do what we have to do and clean up Dodge and come back to this at some future time. It, it seems very feasible and makes sense. It, it, it really yeah. does. Now, yeah. regarding your dad's departure, uh, how did your mother Dorothy handle that, and and how did she address it to you as children, and even later in, in decades to come? What was your mother's opinion of your father George? So, uh, first of all, when the when the stuff hit the fan regarding the incest arrest, we're immediately put in military school. And how old was your sister at the time this incident took place? Fourteen. Wow. Yeah, I was eight or nine. She was fourteen, and. Uh, so, you know, we wouldn't know that she there was a trial or anything until much later. And uh, uh, basically, and the other thing that bothered me, I thought, well, how could there, how could the murder of a, when I got into it as an investigator, there's no way, you know, with us there, he's going to commit a murder. Well, I find out from the DA files that it's written that we're all gone. They, they interviewed mom. And basically, she stonewalled them, said she knew nothing about the crime, uh, well, they would also indicate in the files that Dad knew and dated Elizabeth Short. So there's a, a big question. You know, a lot of people wow. say, "Well, okay, a photograph." So this is amazing now. So okay, so, so it's it's there was evidence that your dad also had somewhat of a relationship with Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. Oh, absolutely, and this is Dahlia. Okay, so it wasn't know. just some woman he randomly found and an attack. No, he, no, he had. We presume no, some kind of intimacy. Back, actually, they started dating in '43 and '44. Wow. And. And he was connected with her. I mean, that, you know, one of the big questions my readers say is, well, I'm not convinced that photo is her, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. so it no longer matters whether that photo is her or not. DA reports indicate that they right. were dating and were acquainted. Let me just ask you, because I'm sure listeners are thinking the same thing. It, was there any similarity in look between Elizabeth Short and your mother, Dorothy? Because sometimes men who are serial killers will have a particular type. Sometimes they don't. But was there a similarity between them? Well, I mean, in the sense that they were both attractive and brunettes, uh, but very general, I would say. And, and he was all over the map on his victims. The real crime signature, which we're, unfortunately I don't think we're going to have time to discuss, is is fascinating, and to me, it's the most interesting part of the whole story. Well, you, you, now you're tantalizing us. You've got to tell but, us what, what is that. Most... Well, I'm going to tell you. It's it's uh, murder is a fine art was the key to crime signature that he had, and it has to do with surrealism and his friendship with Man Ray, and it involves other surrealist artists of that time, uh, Marcel Duchamp. Uh, William Copley. Did he know Salvador uh, Dali? Oh, I'm sure he knew Dali because Dali had uh, uh, was making the Spellbound film, and actually some of Dad's crime signatures are taken from Spellbound, the movie. Right. I mean, it, it, it's it's amazing. The um, did he encounter uh, Hitchcock? 
uh, I don't know about Hitchcock, but but certainly Monray and and I ex- I probably met Duchamp too because Duchamp and and uh, Monray were very close fr- friends. Right. And uh, so, but but they all in their own ways later on they were all aware of his crime and they actually did artwork in homage to George Odell. See, this whole posing of the body and and what he did to the body was his own surreal masterpiece. Was it appreciative homage for what your dad had done, or was it macabre fascination? Well, it could have been both, but I I think it was appreciative because that was a whole movement back then, and very dark and very misogynistic. You know, most of Man Ray's works you'll see are cut up, women cut up, women bisected. And Dad actually paid homage to Man Ray by replicating a couple of his surrealist his photographs. This is starting to sound like a Stanley Kubrick film. I mean, it's, it's... It, well, it is. I mean, it, it it is. I mean, this is the key that really sets this apart from, and really sets Dad's crimes apart from anything else. Is these, and it's not just one or two. It's I've, I'm now up to about fifteen different links to uh, very definite links that tie him into this. And, uh, and there's a whole other aspect that where he's posing the bodies near street signs as a, taunt, a taunting clue. You described murder as being a fine art. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, basically, you know, Dad was into Poe. As a, you know, as a young man, he was he was really over the edge in a lot of stuff. He, his heroes were Poe and De Quincey, Thomas De Quincey. Baudelaire and and all of the you know the, the poets and the writers of of that time before his time too, and basically uh, De Quincey uh, wrote a wrote a essay called "Murders of Fine Art," and it was published in um, your English paper Blackwoods, is it magazine? Mm-hmm. Uh, at the way back at the turn of the century, and it was a story of basically uh, this, these connoisseurs of murder. Who would meet and discuss uh, that murder should be considered as one of the fine arts? This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. Today's conversation includes graphic content that is not suitable for all listeners. Could you sense, Steve, and, uh, and I just want to remind the audience, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my special guest is Steve Hodell, who has the unfortunate distinction of having a father believed to be the serial murderer of various ladies in Southern California, in particular Elizabeth Short, the 22-year-old aspiring actress who on the 15th of January 1947 was found uh, mutilated and uh, left abandoned in an empty lot. I'm, I'm going to ask an unusual question, Steve, and, and we have a very sophisticated audience, and you are a sophisticated gentleman, so I'm, I'm sure you're going to understand how I mean this, not in a menacing or accusatory way. Sure. But you speak of murder being a fine art, as grisly and um, as as distasteful as it is, and yet the, there is perhaps a part of you that might, because you are his son... Uh, have not an appreciation for murder, but perhaps a, a strange understanding uh, for him being so thorough, shall we say, as he has been in so many other ventures in his life uh, with murder. I mean, and did you sense that getting to know the man? In a sense, you were getting to know your father all over again. That's exactly right. I knew very little about him, and he was a, a man behind an iron mask, very secretive his whole life, even though I was I would see him through the decades and and visit him, but it was always there was a distance. He wasn't your 
typical warm fuzzy father. He no, was, evidently not. You know, but he was he was cold and 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 but but and remote. But 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 in the last decade when he returned, we became you know he wasn't capable of you know what what I would call a father son love, but he mm. was capable of at least he was you know he had warmed up a bit, and we became in my view kind of quite close, and I had respect for him tremendous respect for his abilities. So um, ultimately, you know, I had no idea of these crime signatures. I had no idea that until I really got into the weeds of it and I got into studying Man Ray and, and all of our Man Ray, you know, we had about 15 different photos from Man Ray of our family photos and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I started looking at Man Ray and his artwork. And um, then I started realizing what dad had done, uh, the posing of the Black Dahlia's body cut in half was in imitation of a famous photograph by Man Ray called the Minotaur, which uh -huh. is, you know, the Minotaur was locked on the island of Crete, was half beast, uh, half bull, and uh, devoured maidens. They fed it maidens. Then there now, was was another Man, do you suppose there was this kind of peculiar homage going on between Man Ray and your father back and forth? I mean, do you think both parties were conscious of it? Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. Um, uh, and it's the, the, there's a um, Man Ray and and uh, Copley, William Copley, who was another surrealist artist from that time period, were well, during their Hollywood years were regular visitors to the what I call the Franklin House, the Smyon Temple, uh, Lloyd Wright's mm -hmm. home, and uh, they were regular visitors and and. Um, Elizabeth Short actually posed for Man Ray, one of Man Ray's paintings in 43, called Le Equivoque. And, wow. yeah. And, so it's and a very small world, these these. It's a very persons. small world, but, but yeah. I think either George introduced her, her to him or Man Ray introduced her to him, to George. I don't know which way it was. What was amazing was in this drawing, there's a, a geometrical figure instead of a face. Well, Dad, in his in his torture and, and murder of Elizabeth Short, carves this same geometrical figure on her right hip. So again, that's not only is it the Minotaur, but he carves this very unique geometrical on her right hip, again, in homage to Man Ray. And after the fact, of course, I'm not saying that the, all of these surrealists were involved in the actual crime. I, I don't think they were. But certainly they were aware immediately afterwards. Marcel Duchamp, one of his most famous works is Etant Donnet, which is a woman's body posed in a lot, a nude body posed in a lot with her arms up and stuff, which has been on display for decades at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Uh, and then there's there's others. Copley did one that's called It's Midnight Dr. Blank, and it's a woman, and it's a surgeon, a man standing there, and a surgeon, uh, clearly a surgeon with a surgeon tools, and there's a nude body below him, and he's he's about to bisect uh, bisect the body. So that was Copley's homage to George, and then Fred Sexton, another friend of his, did another one. So uh, I mean, it, it all comes together in in this incredible, as I say, murders a fine art, crime signature. I want to ask you, Steve, um, and for those of us just being uh, joined to the program right now, you're listening to Watching America. And I'm speaking to Steve Hodel, who is the author of many books, the first of which was Black Dahlia Avenger in 2003. And his most recent book, incidentally, is called In the Mesquite 2019, which we'll talk about in a moment, solving the 1938 West Texas kidnap torture case. And that is the murders of Hazel and Nancy Frome. But getting back to the Black Dahlia and your father um, being the perpetrator believed to be of, of these heinous crimes, murders. I want to ask you about the discovery of evil being so close to you. You see, I'm always conscious of the fact that people sometimes have a macabre fascination with murder and death and, and all sorts of mayhem because they can afford to have it and it hasn't actually touched them. Uh, I've actually known somebody who's been murdered and um, when it gets closer, it's, it's, it's less fascinating because it then appears to be a reality. Having been close to him, Steve, and you discovered these things with great certitude, without doubt, mm -hmm. did you cry? Did you feel duped? Did you feel anger? How did you I've, handle I've it emotionally? Every, Alan, I've been through every possible emotion you can think of. Uh, uh, and, and ultimately, I came to 
came to see him as a Jekyll, as a real life Jekyll and Hyde. And I always thought that was an interesting, you know, uh, novel, but, but no real truth to it. Well, he proved me wrong. Hmm. Uh, and the truth is I love the Dr. Jekyll, the good part of him that was brilliant and could have done anything, could have cured cancer, could have, you know, had, and I grew to hate the Mr. Hyde, that monster within him and which was the stronger creature. And, uh, to this day, I've, I've been through every possible emotion you can think of and, now I've just I'm left with a terrible sadness, you know, uh, just to, and, and I like I tried to look at a lot of the triggers that caused him, and I've looked at a lot of them, and I I I, I you know you kind of have to understand his background. His mother was uh, and father were Russian Jews. They went to Paris, and uh, she became a dentist in 1901. Paris, unheard of at that time, and they came through Ellis Island, came out to L.A very controlling mother, you know, he was uh, this young genius, and uh, he, he'd go to his mother and say, and this this is a story from my mother, he'd go to his mother and say, Mom, can I go out and play baseball with the boys? And You know, his mother would say, no, Georgie, you're, you're a pianist, not a baseball player, you'll hurt your hands. Yes. Very controlling. Right. I think she was he was probably the victim of incest, either with her or some other family member. And uh, he was rejected because of his. He was so smart and advanced. He two or three grades ahead of everybody else. Uh, in his, some of his letters, as uh, that he's writing in, he mentions getting revenge for the high school girl that rejected him. So I'm sure there was a lot of peer rejection on his part. And, and rage, um, rage perhaps. Rage and congenital insanity. I mean, there's a whole you know a whole no. bunch of things come together. Looking at Steve Hodel today, uh, it is not surprising that you would have a literary career writing about um, murders, which you've done. So um, you've written multiple books, your latest being, of course, In the Mesquite, 2019, and yeah. Solving the 1938 West Texas Kidnap uh, Case. What was the fascination with writing the latest book, very, very quickly? Well, yeah, well, basically, all of these books are really just one book. It's an ongoing investigation and continuation of his crimes, you know, from 40, from 1940. Well, so are you saying your father was involved in the West Texas kidnap case? Yes, he was the killer. I hate to ruin the, the story, but that's okay. The, yes, the, when he was in, when he was doing his doctoring in New Mexico and uh, Arizona, th- this is a crime he, he committed there uh, during that time period. This occurred in 1938. He did crimes in other places. He did crimes in Chicago. He did crimes in Manila. So all of these books are all his crimes. Wow. Steve, you have said that, um, you know, obviously you're grief-stricken by by all of this and extremely sad by these events. Um, Somebody uh, with a lack of grace and kindness uh, might say, and I'm only voicing this so you can respond, might be inclined to say, well, okay, this is all well and good, but this man is profiting uh, from the deaths of all these people and recounting them. And in a sense, the the Black Dahlia Elizabeth Short is being exploited yet again by, by you writing of these accounts. What is your rebuttal to that? What, how do you set the record straight? This has never been about money for me. And number one, you've got to have about 15 bestsellers to make any, mo- any real money. That's true. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, believe me, I'm I'm still in the hole on these, even though they've become a New York Times bestseller and stuff. Sure. I, it's not about money. It's about what it's all been about for me is I'm wired to search for the truth. And that's that's the truth of it. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm just uh, I, I want it's an important story. It it deals. It's the real history of Los Angeles, of Hollywood. Uh, these amazing, all of these crimes, and it's all about getting to the truth of it, and gi- gi- giving some, you know, recompense to the victims. You know, um, sure. a lot of detectives will say it's BS, and it's not. It, it's a very real part of uh, the knowing who did it is is very important and is uh, is a great aid to comforting the family mem- extended family members. Steve. A very difficult question and perhaps the most uh, arduous and uh, challenging for you at the end here. Mm -hmm. What positive thing can we take away from these very dark occurrences that have transpired? Positive for society, positive for you, 
positive for your beloved deceased mother, your family. Is there any light at all that can be gleaned from these circumstances? Well, I, I think that uh, the light comes from knowing the truth of it. And, and I think that uh, knowing the truth as opposed to the you know, the, the, the uh, falsities that have been... I mean, there's so many myths about Elizabeth Short. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it because, uh, you know, I started... Normally in a homicide investigation, you start out with a tabula rasa, a blank slate. And there were so many myths stacked on this on her murder and, and suspects and all sorts of things that I had to deconstruct all of those myths. Yeah, she was falsely accused of being a prostitute, among other things, and, oh, and her absolutely. friends refused that. I spent that. a whole chapter, re, you know, rehabilitating her character. She was just basically a uh, attractive, naive uh, young woman looking to fall in love during the war with Miss Lieutenant Wright and live happily ever after. There was no; she was not a prostitute. She was not a druggie. So anyway, there was a, a gave gave me great pleasure in setting the record straight as far as the victim herself. And, and and knowing, I mean, all of these crimes, you know, uh, setting the record straight, uh, tr- truth is is my God, if you will, and, and uh, we've developed a hell of a lot of truths uh, from my investigation. So that's been my reward. On many graves is inscribed three words, rest in peace. Yes. And I presume perhaps even on the graves of some of his victims. Regarding all of this, will you ever be able to rest in peace? I will, because again, as, as hor- horrific as the truth has been, and as the discoveries that my father was one of the worst monsters that ever walked the earth, uh, knowing the truth of it and, and being able to present that uh, gives me an ability to to rest in peace. I, you know, know, knowing those truths are very, very satisfying for me. That's why I loved homicide work so much. Solving the riddle, the mystery, the enigma was always part of my DNA. Steve Hodell, it has been extremely interesting speaking with you. I found you to be candid, direct, and telling perhaps one of the most chilling stories I have ever heard relayed and disturbing. With complete candor, unabashedly, and um, as you would say, honoring the truth. And for that, all of us on this side of production and listening for those in the audience of Watching America, I thank you. Take I care, thank sir. you, Dr. Campbell. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. Blessings. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.